Jewish American songwriter who fled Europe month continues here on the podcast. This is When Hearts Are Young, co-written, actually, by last week's Jewish American songwriter who fled Europe, Al Goodman, a man whose name always reminds me, <laughs> oh yeah, Better Call Saul is back. <laughs> Al Goodman co-wrote this one with Sigmund Romberg. Sigmund Romberg was born in Hungary, spent his early life in Hungary and Austria, and I'll be honest, there is no evidence on his Wikipedia page that he actually fled Europe. He definitely left Europe. There is nothing that I'm aware of to suggest that he fled a pogrom, but you know what? In that time and place, I think the pogrom is implied. Sometimes, in economics or in podcasting, it's okay to assume a pogrom, and I think, eh, you know, Central Europe in the 19-aughts, there's going to be a few pogroms floating around, so... Sigmund Romberg got on a ship, probably was chased on a ship, let's not kid ourselves, came to New York. Why does nobody ever come to Norfolk? I'm from Norfolk, we're a port, why does nobody ever come into, well, I guess if I was Jewish back then, I would maybe, (laughs) would not have sailed into Norfolk, if I'm being honest. But anyway, he came to New York, got a job in a pencil factory, which I think is just a fantastic 19-aughts something job, working in a pencil factory? That's so perfect. When I think jobs back then, I think like pencil factories, whalebone corset factory, selling apples from a cart. Maybe some job where you're just exposed to dangerous materials for no reason. Some job where you just sit in a circle and pass around a chunk of uranium for no reason. Seems like that maybe would have been a job in 1909. But the song is When Hearts Are Young, written by Al, better call Al Goodman, and Sigmund Romberg, performed by a guy who's been on the podcast before, Paul Whiteman. I thought maybe his name would maybe get a little less weird every time I said it. Nope, it's getting weirder every time. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer. Thank you for listening to the I Might Be Wrong podcast. This is the part where I announce what podcast you're listening to, as if you went to iTunes and just typed in, surprise me. And this came up. You probably know what podcast this is, and you probably also know you can find all my writing at imightberwrong.substack.com, and you also probably know that I'm going to ask you to please like, subscribe, share the articles, pass them around, leave a review, just send me a, like a big envelope full of cash if you want to. Cash is good. Boxes of rubies, a string of pearls. I'd take a string of pearls, absolutely. Any form of compensation is welcome. Podcasters can't be choosers. Today's episode is called, I Demand That Twitter Be a Forum in Which the Internet's Saltiest Morons Depanch Themselves. I wanted to write this one because there's a lot of debate about content curation and free speech on Twitter, especially now that Elon Musk is maybe buying Twitter. And I'm very pro-free speech for ethical reasons, but also for practical reasons. One of the things that I think is so misguided about this crusade to try to get all bad speech off of social media. What's bad? Who decides? One thing that's misguided is that I don't think these ideologies, these extreme ideologies, are appealing. I think they're shitty. And I think the more people are exposed to them, the more people will recognize that they're shitty. So I want to take a moment to point out that aspect of the debate. The title is, I demand that Twitter be a forum in which the internet's saltiest morons de-pants themselves. Subheading, a little discussed upside of free speech. 
So Elon Musk, who of course is a space uh, guy and also owns a car company, he owns Geo, you know, the Geo Metro, he owns that. He is trying to buy Twitter. And as I'm recording this, it's looking like he's probably going to succeed. He has made an all-cash offer worth, I think the last number I saw was $43 billion. And by the way, spare a thought for the poor fuck who gets stuck behind Elon Musk the day he shows up at Wells Fargo and withdraws $43 billion from the ATM. I hope you did not have anything else to do that day. Poor bastard who gets stuck behind Musk as he withdraws $43 billion in 20s. Anyway, Musk has said that he does not care about the economics of the deal at all. Great thing for a CEO to say, by the way. He doesn't care at all. Hey, everyone, show up at work every day and work hard, because I don't care about the economics, actually, but you should work hard. (laughs) Anyway, he doesn't care about the economics. He wants to make Twitter a, quote, platform for free speech and a also, quote, de facto town square, end quote, and just in time because my South African accent is not good at all. Anyway, I don't see any reason to doubt that Elon Musk is probably telling the truth when he says that. And, by the way, I'm sure it has also crossed his mind that maybe some sort of keep me from committing securities fraud by tweeting well on acid feature might also be nice from his perspective. And Musk's bid to buy Twitter has led to histrionic reaction on Twitter, which is the opposite of surprising. Probably any event on earth can be tagged with the suffix which led to histrionic reaction on Twitter. The sentence, a bunny sniffed a tulip in a meadow, which led to histrionic reaction on Twitter, that is probably true 365 days a year. And the current cycle of pants sweating is around, oh, about 800 trillion of the debate about content moderation on social media. A debate which is, kind of ironically, itself eh, kind of a pretty good argument against the value of open debate. Because, let's be honest, we're not going to solve jack shit here. This discussion is not very much like philosophers trading bone mows in the Greek forum. It is very much like two hillbillies on a riverbank trying to shove mud down each other's pants. If you could teleport John Stuart Mill to the present day and show him that the subject of and the forum for our civic debate is an app that is basically <laughs> the Pithbot 5000, which shut-ins and opportunists used to dunk on each other using Ace Ventura gifts, Mill would probably become a devoted backer of enlightened despotism right there on the spot. And we should recognize that, honestly... There are very few absolutists in this discussion. Even I, who am about as pro-free speech as Kid Rock is pro-being rad and partying, know that some level of content moderation has to happen. Abusers and bots do make sites unusable, so they have to go. The debate really is about where to draw the line. Many on the more moderation side seem to feel that some ideas are so dangerous, so damaging that they have to be aggressively chased off of social media, which is the point at which our opinions begin to diverge. Though I often wrap myself in high-minded rhetoric about principles and fairness, my God, I get up my own ass sometimes, there is a practical consideration at play here. (laughs) And that practical consideration is, I very much like it when my opponents trample all over their own balls.
And Twitter is awesome for that. When we restrict what can be said on Twitter, we restrict the ability of society's most impressive morons to expose themselves as crackpots worthy of our mockery. So take Ukraine. Please. No, wait, no, that structure doesn't work here. Take Ukraine. The invasion of Ukraine is probably the easiest moral question of our time. The question of <laughs> whether it's okay for a country to invade another country without provocation, that does seem like a question that might appear in the Journal of Ethics for Babies, alongside conundrums like, do people other than you have needs, or pooping whenever, wherever. Is there any reason why you shouldn't? Nonetheless, some public figures have, incredibly, managed to get it wrong. Tulsi Gabbard has established herself as the clear favorite for the Randy Quaid Something Has Gone Seriously Wrong Here Award by serving as a mouthpiece for pro-Russian propaganda. Marjorie Taylor Greene, that brain trust, intensified her already seismic crazy aunt on Facebook vibes by blaming the war on Democrats, of course, and Mitt Romney. Roger Stone is fervently pro-Russia in a not-at-all-suspicious way. The Democratic Socialist of America International Committee, which, to be fair, might just be two guys in an art space in the East Bay. I guess if there are two of you, you are technically a committee. They sent out a tweet thread putting most of the blame on NATO. And I haven't even, of course, even mentioned Tucker Carlson, who mostly spews Russian apologism on his disturbingly high-rated show, but who also spreads his garbage to Twitter as kind of a multi-pronged intellectual sewage experience. And if there was ever an issue where it is possible to draw a straight line between policy decisions and lost lives, it is Ukraine. And of course, it has become normal in policy debates to warn of the horrible consequences if the other side wins. A proposal to, for example, extend a county's fishing season by one week will inevitably cause someone to claim that the change will result in dead children. But the stakes in Ukraine, they are immediate and they are very real. It is the kind of life or death situation that Americans simulate in video games to mitigate our postmodern boredom but that in about half the world is still actual real life. And with that being true, with the stakes being that high, you might think that I am furious about the obfuscation and Russian apologism that can be seen on Twitter. I'm emphatically not. I actually kind of love it because people... I already knew to be idiots. I was not exactly on the Tulsi Gabbard bandwagon before this. People I already knew to be idiots are flaunting their dumbassery for the whole world to see. To extend Musk's town square metaphor, my rivals are in the town square, slathering themselves with goat shit and yelling about how their prize hog is actually the prophet Elijah. Come stoning season, that's going to make it a lot easier to convince the other town folk that my enemies have brought a curse upon our crops and need to be sacrificed. I welcome this display of lunacy, and I invite one and all to witness it. And my one regret is that Donald Trump's metaphorical goat shit smearing is mostly happening in private. 
Because I happen to be one of the 329,999,990 Americans who does not subscribe to Trump's truth social network, the Trump-backed Twitter competitor that makes Trump stakes look like a runaway success, I don't subscribe to that, so I have been mostly ignorant to Trump's musings on the topic of Ukraine. His most damning pro-Russia statements actually came on AM talk radio. So, of course, most people missed it because, of course, most people are not long-haul truckers currently barreling across the Plains states. So that went largely unnoticed. By contrast, if Trump had been on Twitter, he would have immediately rattled off hundreds of pro-Putin tweets, which could be used by anyone running against him such as a Republican in the primary in 2024, who I, I'm really not going to like, but if they will just accept the results of the election, I will be rooting for them over Trump. So that's an arrow that will not be in that person's quiver because Trump is not on Twitter right now. And it does seem that at some point, liberals will unmask, realize that Twitter banning Trump is an absolute gift to Republicans. We live in an era of negative polarization in which campaigning is 90% talking shit about your opponent and 10% eating whatever a carny tosses into a deep fat fryer at a state fair. We also live in an era of strong national party brands. So everyone in the party is affected by anything that anyone else in the party does. I can imagine the daily hell that Republican staffers must have gone through during the Trump era, because I got a small taste of a similar hell during my brief time answering phones in Rahm Emanuel's congressional office in the mid-2000s. Rahm was the head of the DCCC at the time, and the craziest member of the Democratic caucus back then was Cynthia Goddamn McKinney. Not many people remember Cynthia McKinney, but holy cats, she was crazy. And whenever she would do something crazy, which was daily... We would get calls from reporters asking us to comment. It becomes difficult to control a narrative when you are getting calls <laughs> all the time saying, hey, Cynthia McKinney just rode an ostrich through a Denny's. Care to comment? One hour later, hey, Cynthia McKinney just got on stage at a Chuck E. Cheese and punched the dog who plays guitar straight in the nose. What's Rom's reaction? Honestly, if there had been a send Cynthia McKinney to deep space button somewhere, any Democrat in the caucus would have pressed it. Twitter has done Republicans an enormous favor by muzzling their loudest and most prominent jackass. Which is a competitive category, by the way. And of course, not every bad idea that you experience on Twitter or somewhere else on social media is going to be ridiculed. Not every harebrained twit who spews nonsense will be labeled a fool. And that honestly is too bad. The moments when I am most tempted to waver from my pro-free speech position are the moments when the damage being caused by idiots and bad actors seems impossible to miss. During the pandemic, it was incredibly frustrating when a medical professional, acting in good faith, would make a statement with strong empirical backing, often drawing on the most rigorous processes that modern science has to offer, 
only for some influential crackpot to pop up and counter that with, nah, nah, I don't think so. (laughs) And then usually a very official looking graph with probability bars that nobody would actually bother to understand. That was really frustrating. And honestly, if I had more faith in companies' ability to adjudicate these questions, if I thought there were clear and neutral rules that could be applied, I might support aggressively trying to remove that crap. Alas, I do not think that can be done. I am also, by the way, afraid that you can actually make bad information more attractive by labeling it secret and forbidden. That secret and forbidden label makes some people just desperate to see it. They're desperate to see it the same way I was desperate to see any rated R movie when I was 12, even if that movie, and this did happen, was The Piano. (laughs) My mom rented it. I went down at night and watched it because it was rated R, and I wanted to see it. And there is nudity in it, but the nudity is Harvey Keitel, so not super what I was after. As an adult, I realized that's actually a very good movie, but at 12, I just saw Harvey Keitel's schlong and thought, this is not what I hoped it would be. Anyway, which is by that's by the way that's not a comment on Harvey Keitel's slog. I had no expectations for the movie, not on for his penis. I my deepest apologies to Harvey Keitel's penis. Anyway, the point is, Harvey Keitel's penis aside, the point is, in the long run, I do think that bad ideas mostly get exposed. Exposed like Harvey Keitel's penis. God damn it, I'm back where I didn't want to be. They mostly get exposed as bad ideas, once again, in the long run. In the long run, cranks get shown up, liars lose people's trust, Trump underperforms the GOP as a whole, which he did in both elections. It can take a frustrating amount of time for a crank to get exposed as a crank. I mean, people are still buying tickets for the Michael Moore train, for God's sake. But I do think it happens more often than not. In many cases, the best way to discredit a crackpot is to simply give them enough rope to hang themselves with. Or, as the case may be, give them a phone, give them a Twitter account, give them maybe a Red Bull or five, and then sit back and prepare for magic. Bad ideas can be dangerous sometimes, but they are always bad. We do them a favor when we allow them to lurk in the shadows, when we deny them the exposure that would let people see how bad the bad ideas really are. If I truly think that I'm right when I make an argument, then I need to have faith that, once again, in the long run, my arguments are going to win the day. The nuttier my opponent, the bigger favor I'm doing them by promoting rules that hide their lunacy. Much better to let them metaphorically slather themselves with goat shit in the town square. And if that's the type of town square that Elon Musk has in mind, then, in the interest of promoting good ideas, I guess I am on board. And that's the episode. Once again, my deepest, deepest, most heartfelt apologies to Harvey Cartels Johnson. I did not mean for that to come out the way it did. That was an unfortunate turn of phrase. I have nothing but the utmost respect for your crunk. It was absolutely everything I dreamed it would be and more. I hope I do not hear from Harvey Keitel's penis's lawyers. 
I would be happy to have Harvey Keitel's Wang on the show, and we could talk this out because you know this show's about dialogue. So you know, so let's talk it through. It's just a misunderstanding. Open invitation to Harvey Keitel's Hog. Anyway, that's the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it compels you to compensate me either at imightbewrong.substack.com or again you can mail me trinkets valuables mail me a Fabergé egg that's fine any sort of valuable maybe a treasure map could be involved that'd be a lot of fun just mail me a, a badly worn map with like a tree and an X that would be much appreciated but I do appreciate you listening everything remains completely free at the moment so I mostly just want people to enjoy this podcast and my writing and crap and of course, I will be back next week with another episode, unless I am sued into oblivion by Harvey Keitel's Cox lawyers. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>